And today, as he kind of closes out his letter, it's like his final, it's like his closing paragraphs. He, he wants to remind them who they are in Jesus. Uh, and that that has bearing not just in this life, but a future hope as well. An unending, eternal future hope. So let me pray for us um, and pray that my voice doesn't die. And then we'll, uh, we'll get stuck in. Uh, Father God, thank you for your word. Thank you that it's eternal. Thank you that it will never pass away. Uh, thank you that you have spoken um, in history, but you speak to us right now. Lord, we're slow to understand. We, we, we have hearts that don't want to hear you. We have hearts that, that want to apply our own meaning to, to these uh, sacred words. So help us get the meaning of what you're trying to say. Lord, I pray that... Uh, you would speak to us clearly this morning that we'd be transformed because of that. We love you, Jesus, and we want to be more like you. In your name, amen. Um, I was thinking about this this week because uh, I was chatting with my sister. She's not well at the minute. And um, for some reason, we were just talking about when we were kids. And we used to do this thing. Uh, you know, um, on a Saturday night, I don't know if they still do it or not on TV, they would have the, the lottery draw. I'm sure they still do it on TV, do they? I don't know. Um, but we, I mean, we didn't, we never done the lottery. Well, we were kids, so we obviously we didn't, but, um, but we would like talk about what you would do with all the money, right? Say it was like 20 million or 8 million or whatever, like what you would do with all the money. I don't know if you've ever done that. You're like, imagine what you would do with all that money. So I knew if, say I won 20 million, I, I knew exactly what I would do with the money. I'm not going to tell you what it is because you'll all judge me, except it definitely includes a season ticket to Old Trafford. Um, Maybe I could afford more than that. Maybe I could afford like a corporate box or something. I don't know. Um, throw stuff at Jose Mourinho. Um, that was a joke. But, but there's this thing, there's, there's this, there's this uh, kind of principle that it, what we imagine about the future like, affects how we live now, right? So I was never going to win the lottery because I don't do the lottery. And certainly back then I was a kid, I didn't do the lottery. You know what I mean? Um, but say I knew that I was going to come into this inheritance of 20 million pounds. How would that affect how I live now? And this is what John is talking about here. He's talking about at the end of this letter, it's a certain type of future that is assured for these Christians, for us as well. Remember that we sometimes, we sometimes talk a lot, well, John is saying this to these people, and we forget that actually God is saying this to us, right? John didn't write this letter primarily. The purpose of this letter isn't primarily to these Christians 2,000 years ago. The purpose of, of this letter is God speaking to the church while as long as the church exists. And so we have this certain type of future that John's talking about, which means that we have this certain type of present, right? Belief transforms how we think. Confidence in the future leads us to live in confidence now. So um, I have a friend... <clears throat> excuse me, and he used to be really into kickboxing. He was going for his first big fight, and in the months leading up to it, weeks leading up to it, he was like 100% sure that he was going to win. 100%. Like, I would just say to him, I was like, well, what about, he's like, no, I'm going to knock him out. I'm going to win. I'm definitely knocking him out. Um, and so that affected how he went into the ring. That affected how he ate. That affected how he slept. He would sleep. He would go to bed early, get up and go, get up really early. He would eat really well. He'd be training really hard. And basically, his belief of a future affected how he was living now. It didn't turn out how he thought it was going to turn out, but that's a different story. 
And this is what John is talking about here. He's saying there's something that we can believe in now that, that will ultimately deliver all of our hopes. Something, a future that is so secure that it might as well be happening right now. A future that is so secure that it will never disappoint. And that future is embodied in the person of Jesus. And so what God has said to us this morning is that when we believe in Jesus, we walk in confidence because our victory is already won. I'm going to say that a lot today. Our future is secure. And I want to look at three things this morning. Believing in Jesus changes us internally, externally, and eternally. Internally, externally, and eternally. Firstly then, look at verse one with me for this internal change. Verse one says, everyone who believes that Jesus is the Christ has been born of God. And everyone who loves the Father loves whoever has been born of him, right? So we've heard this before from John, this idea of new birth, of being born of God, new birth, new identity. It's a big theme throughout this whole letter. And it shouldn't be a surprise to you by now, if you've been here for the rest of it, that John is talking again about being born of God or being born again. Now remember the context that he was speaking into. Remember that he was these false teachers who were who claimed to be Christians, but they had actually departed from the church and they were trying to draw all the true Christians away with them. And so John writes this letter just so they would know that they actually are Christians. And according to Jesus and according to John, at the core of what a Christian is, is that we're born again, that we're born of God, that we have a new nature. But what does this mean? Because that sounds a bit crazy, doesn't it? Right, you have to be born again. You have to have a new nature. How does this work? Well, the Bible tells us that we're, we're all born physically alive, but spiritually dead, right? We're all born in separation from God. There's a distance between us, which means that we can never access the true life that he has. And we've got no hope of rectifying that ourselves. So in order for us to be reconciled to God, brought close to God again, we need to be, uh, we need a new birth. We need a new nature. We need to move from the, the, the if you like, the, the, the family line of death into the family line of life. And John, uh, John writes, uh, John writes uh, a, few, a few of the books of the New Testament and he writes an account of Jesus' life and it's called the gospel according to John. And in this, he talks about, he tells this uh, story of, it's not a story, it's true, but he tells this uh, episode when, when, um, Jesus is talking to this uh, Jewish leader called Nicodemus. And Nicodemus has all these questions. He's like, Jesus, I've heard you talking about this, uh, of this thing called the kingdom of God. He's like, I'm really holy and I, 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 love, I love what I do and I love being a Pharisee and I love being a leader, but I want to access the kingdom of God. Is there something I'm missing out on here? How can I see the kingdom of God? And Jesus, and Jesus says, well, unless you are born again, you're not going to see the kingdom of God. And Nicodemus is an old man, and he's like, what are you talking about? Because how can I be born again? I'm an old man. Can I, he actually says, can I enter into my mother's womb again and be born? No, that's impossible. We have up on the slide here verses from John 3, and this is what Jesus says to him. Do you have it on the screen? Yeah, I do. This is from John 3. <coughs> Jesus says to him, no one has ascended into heaven except he who descended from heaven, the son of man. This is the son of man is, is a, a, an Old Testament phrase that Jesus used to describe himself. He says, I am the son of man. And as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, 
Just checking the right one. Uh, so must the Son of Man be lifted up, that whoever believes in him may have eternal life. For God so loved the world that he gave his only son, that is Jesus, talking about himself here, that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. For God did not send the son into the world to condemn the world, but in order that the world might be saved through him. Whoever believes in him is not condemned, but whoever does not believe is condemned already because he has not believed in the only son of God. Is condemned already. You see, we're born with a death sentence, right? We all, we all know that. Everyone knows that, right? You can see it, you know? Our bodies are decaying. And Jesus tells Nicodemus that if you want to be born again, if you want to get this new nature, and if you want to receive the kingdom of God, it can only come through believing in Jesus. And so this is the teaching of Jesus that John is referring to here in 1 John chapter 5 of his letter to these churches. And when he says, everyone that believes that Jesus Christ has been, has been born of God, he's talking about what Jesus was talking about here, people who have been born again. If you believe that Jesus is the Son of God, God the Son who took on flesh, lived a sinless life, died a sacrificial death, rose again and ascended into heaven where he's seated at the right hand of God and intercedes, that is, prays for us as our advocate, then you've been born again and you have a new nature. You have a new identity. Your identity has been changed. So you're no longer separated from God. You're now reconciled to God. This is who you are now. So if you're a Christian this morning, this is who you are. You have this identity as a child of God. You're one of Christ. We literally take on his name. We become Christians. Christ, Christians. Christians, that's what they'd say in Scotland. But, or in Balmina. Christians, um, <laughs> we literally take on his name. We become Christians because we have his identity. We have a new life. And this changes everything. It changes our present and our future. But what does it mean to believe in Jesus? Because we talk about that a lot, don't we? Right? We always talk about believing in Jesus. Oh, you need to believe in Jesus. Um, like the way you talk about believing in Santa or something. But what John's talking about here is more than just like believing in Jesus with your head. It's more than just an intellectual kind of acceptance that Jesus exists, right? Because, I mean, I don't know if you'd find anyone now who would, wouldn't believe that Jesus actually existed. The historical evidence is so strong that he actually did exist. But it's much more than that. It's a type of belief that when you accept Jesus Christ as Lord and you surrender your life to him, right? So Jesus goes from being a historic figure to being everything. And this isn't just something that John talks about. It's a biblical principle. And we see it in 2 Corinthians 5. Paul says, there, I think we've got it on the slide as well. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, that is, if anyone believes in Jesus, if anyone believes in Jesus and has made, him, uh, made Jesus their Lord, accepted him as Lord, we are now in, in Christ that person is a new creation. The old has passed away. Behold, the new has come. So when you believe in Jesus, you're a new creation. The old is gone, the new have come. You have a new identity. And I think that this is a really important concept for us to grasp, isn't it? Especially here in Northern Ireland, right? For such a long time, being a Christian has been hijacked 
by cultural identity rather than, than an identity that actually means something eternally, right? It's easy to live in Northern Ireland and think that you're a Christian, uh, call yourself a Christian because you grew up going to church or because you, you're good living or because your parents are Christians. A, fr- a friend of mine actually raised the point that you, you can consider yourself a Christian because you're not Muslim, Hindu, atheist, and Christian is kind of the closest fit when you have to tick a box on a form. And there's a lot of people in our country and in our city who call themselves Christian simply because they want to belong to cultural Protestantism or cultural Catholicism. But it's got nothing to do with political identity. I want to be really clear. None of these things have anything to do with a life-giving, identity-changing faith in Jesus. I actually, I don't care about your politics, really. I care about where you stand with Jesus. Everybody's welcome here. Whatever, whatever you think about the United Kingdom or United Ireland, I, it doesn't matter to me. It's not that important in the eternal scheme of things. So when we think of the United Kingdom or we think of a United Ireland, what we should be thinking about is it a kingdom united with people who are united in Jesus and by Jesus. Or if we think about United Ireland, we should think about men and women united, not politically, but, but people who are united with Christ and in Christ. So this is my first challenge for you today. <laughs> challenge for me is keeping my voice going. Can I, just simply, do you believe in Jesus? Do you believe in Jesus? Do you believe in Jesus in a way that gives you that new identity? Do you believe that it's more than just believing that he was some kind of good teacher or, or believing that, that actually he has the power to save you but never actually doing anything about that? Do you believe in Jesus? Do you believe in him in a way that you have this new identity? And if you do, then listen to what John, what our passage says about you this morning. Verses two to five, read them with me. By this we know that we love the children of God when we love God and obey his commandments. For this is the love of God, that we keep his commandments. And his commandments are not burdensome. For everyone who has been born of God overcomes the world. And this is the victory that has overcome the world, our faith. Who is it that overcomes the world except the one who believes that Jesus is the son of God? So John is saying, is, and we've heard him saying this over and over again, is that if we love God, then we'll obey his commands. This is one of the, the key vital signs that I spoke about at the beginning that's throughout this book. But notice what the text says about these commands in verse three. They are not burdensome. His commands are not burdensome. That literally means they're not heavy. They don't feel like a weight. This is what Jesus said, means in Matthew 11 when he says, Come to me, all who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly in heart, and you will find rest for your soul. My yoke is easy, my burden is light. Who doesn't want to find rest for your soul? See, there's this idea that goes around that Christianity is hard, and, and it is in some ways, but it's all about keeping a set of rules. It's, it's about never getting to do what you actually want to do, and it's about doing this and not doing that, and you can't go there, and you can't say this. That's simply not the case. It's, it's actually living outside of Jesus that's burdensome, right? The constant need to find approval in your peers, the relentless pressure to, to look a certain way and to have a certain amount of money or, or, or to behave a certain way, 
that endless drive to have more money. Imagine, imagine living with the constant weight of not knowing how the future's gonna turn out. That sounds like a heavy way to live to me. It's the way of the world that's burdensome, not the way of Jesus. Following Jesus and obeying him leads to true life because he is true life. Ask, ask anyone, uh, especially for, for you younger Christians, ask anyone in this room or anyone you know that's been walking with Jesus for a long time. They'll tell you that there's no other way to live because these brothers and sisters have proved it over and over and over and over again. Being a Christian means that you have been changed fundamentally and eternally, or fundamentally and in, internally by a new identity. You are now a Christian. You are now one of Christ's. And not only are the commands of Jesus not burdensome, but the passage also tells us that, that we're already victorious, right? Victorious in what? Overcoming temptations of the world that would keep us from obeying the commands in the first place. Look at verse four. Anyone, everyone who has been born of God overcomes the world. And this is the victory that has overcome the world, our faith. You see, Jesus doesn't require a whole bunch of stuff from us and then just leave us to it. He actually equips us to fulfill everything he requires us. So what, what do I mean by that? I mean that he says, hey, live this, live this certain type of way because it's a really the best way for you to live. And by the way, I'm supplying everything you need to do that. You see, we need to understand that, that what God has required of us, he has also provided for us in Jesus. Let me say that again. What God has required of us, he has also provided for us in Jesus. See, I don't know about you, but man, sometimes I just feel like um, it's so hard to obey Jesus. You ever feel like that? If you say no to that question, you're a liar. <laughs> I think sometimes we feel that way. We're just like, man, this is so hard, so hard. But, but we need to be clear that our obedience isn't our obedience. Our obedience is Jesus' obedience, right? Because we are in him. Let me explain what I mean by that. Jesus, eternally God the Son, came to the, his, this earth and he lived a perfect life. He never sinned. He obeyed the Father perfectly, even to the point of death. And dying on the cross, he put an end to the power that sin has over us. And the proof that his sacrifice was enough was what? That he raised from the dead. Sin couldn't hold him. The, the, the worst thing that sin could come up with is death, and I couldn't hold him. And so in him... All that the Father has required of us, Jesus has, has, has provided for us. And listen to this. We have the victory because Jesus won it for us. Jesus has overcome the world and so we've overcome the world. So you can resist that temptation that you keep coming back to over and over and over again, right? Because Jesus has won. You can obey his commands. You can be kind to your neighbor. You can love your enemy because Jesus has won. Believing in Jesus changes us internally by giving us a new identity as sons and daughters of the living God. But also, believing in Jesus changes us externally by bringing us victory over the world. Now, I want to take a second here and explain what this passage means when it says the world. Because 
Even John uses the same word, cosmos in the Greek, and and he he uses it to mean different things in different places, in different contexts. But what he means here right now is the system that you and I live in, right? It's the it's the world around us. It's 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 the environment that we live in that's empowered by Satan that desires to draw us away from God. That's the best definition I could come up with. And we see this in verse 19 of our passage. If you want to turn to it, he'll tell you this. We know that we are from God and the whole world lies in the, lies in the power of the evil one. So this is the world that we live in. This is the world that John is talking about. But in Jesus, we've overcome these things. So what this means is that Jesus has already overcome these things. And when we believe in Jesus, we're not just changed internally, but also externally, so that through the power of the Holy Spirit in us, we can actually live a life that isn't distracted and separated from God, okay? So I know I just said a lot of stuff from there, but hopefully over the next five minutes, I'm gonna unpack what I mean. We can actually live lives right here and now reconciled to God. (laughs) Not that we're gonna be perfect, because we're still constantly battling sin. But we can live in a life that demonstrates and actually stems from the fact that we're no longer separated from God. In Jesus, we have overcome every distraction, every temptation, every sin. There's nothing that can separate you from God anymore. And we're gonna see how this works. If you've got your Bible there, turn back to chapter two. And I wanna because John's very helpful and, and it's very kind of him that he's given us kind of three things that, that we have overcome. Excuse, I know it sounds a bit funny, but that's all we got today. Um, let's read verses 15 to 17. Uh, Do not love the world or the things in the world, right? So it's the same use of the world here. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. For all that is in the world, the desires of the flesh, the desires of the eyes, and pride of life is not from the Father, but is from the world. Okay, so he mentions three things there that are from the world, that are are actively trying to bring us away from God. Desires of the flesh, desires of the eyes, and pride of life. I just think of friends, the brab blab. First, the desires of the flesh. These are the physical desires that that we're all born with, right? We're all born with these physical desires. And they aren't evil in and of themselves, right? So we all have the desire to eat. We all need to eat, right? We all have the desire to rest. We all need to sleep. We all have the desire for for, for sex. These things aren't a shock, wow. Um, But some of us more than others. Um, But we, uh, these things aren't evil in and of themselves, in fact, the Bible, the, the Bible presents these things as neutral things. They aren't evil. Something I've been thinking about this week, actually, is how these uh, human-based desires actually provide us a reminder that we actually need God. So when we sit down to eat, every time we sit down to eat, we're reminded that we can't exist on our own. We need sustenance from outside of ourselves. And so when we thank God for our food, We're actually thanking God that he has met all our need, that we are reminding ourselves that we're not enough in and of ourselves. Isn't that, that's cool. But the world that lies in the power of the evil one, verse 19 of chapter five, wants wants us to take those basic uh, needs and turn them into our ultimate goals in life, right? So food becomes gluttony. The desire to sleep 
becomes like slothfulness and laziness. The desire for sex and intimacy becomes lust and immorality. And we live in this world that takes our physical desires and distorts them so that we might be distracted from God. So that's what the desires of the flesh are. Second, the desires of the eyes. These are things that we look at and long for and want in our lives that God hasn't seen fit to give us, okay? So God provides all our needs, right? We have everything we need in him. Your situation in life is where God has has you right now. And he wants us to be content with what he has given us. But what happens when we aren't content with what God's given us? Well, we become envious of other people. We, the Bible uses this word covet, like we, be, we covet what other people have. And it's not just things, right? We, what about when we desire a person that, that doesn't belong to us? That's just, that's just lust. The world that we live in constantly appeals to the desires of our eyes. Why? To make our desire for things and people greater than our desire for God. This is the world that lies in the power of the evil one and his strategy is to, to make you desire things and people more than you desire God. Because ultimately that path doesn't lead to anything real and eternal and lasting. So these are the desires of the eyes. And 30, the prime, the, I almost said the prime of life. The pride of life. The pride of life. This is taking pride in the things that we acquire and the, the things that we achieve, the stuff that we acquire and the things that we achieve. In Northern Ireland, I would say this is a massive problem, isn't it, right? Maybe all over the Western world, but our context here, we know this, is people want to have the right car, they want to have the right house, right? If you don't own your own home, suddenly you're like, you know, what's wrong with you, why have you failed? People want the nicest stuff. This is, this, it's, it's at the point where this is how we value ourselves, and even worse, it's how we put value in other people, is where they're at in the social ladder. And, and maybe, maybe in your circle, it's not, maybe in our circles around here, it, maybe it's, it's, n- it's not money and status. Maybe it's h- how on trend you are. Maybe it's, are you wearing the right brands? Are you listening to the right music? Are you drinking the right coffee? Are you going to the right gigs? But these things are the, this is the pride of life. When we put our identity in stuff and achievements. So how then do we overcome these things? How then have we overcome the desires of the flesh? The desires of the eyes and the pride of life. What does it mean to overcome these things? Well, firstly, it means, that, it means believing that Jesus is more fulfilling than every earthly pleasure. Let me say that again. Overcoming the desires of the flesh means believing that Jesus is more fulfilling than every earthly pleasure. See, we have these God-given human desires but they're only designed to show us how good God is. We're not meant to worship them. So we believe that Jesus is better than the best food you can ever imagine. It's better to be hungry with Jesus for a long, long, long time than to be full without Jesus for even a short period. We believe that Jesus is better than comfort and, uh, and it's better to be in a hard place for a long time with Jesus than it is to be comfortable even for a short time without Jesus. We believe that Jesus is better than sex, better, better than any human intimacy that we can experience is the intimacy that we have in Jesus because that intimacy will last forever. In other words, we fight the desires of the flesh 
by having a greater desire to experience fulfillment that only Jesus can give us. We've ov- we overcome the desires of the flesh by having a greater desire to experience the fulfillment that only Jesus can give us. Let, let me ask you this. Where do you, where do you struggle with this? Where do you struggle with the... Don't, don't shout out. Well, you can if you want, but it might be embarrassing. Um, where do you struggle with the desires for the flesh? Right? It, it might be food or comfort or sex, but there's a plethora of other things that it might be as well. But whatever it is, can, I, can you just hear me when I say this? Jesus is better. Jesus is better. Whatever it is you're struggling with, Jesus is better. He's the ultimate fulfillment of the thing that you're trying to fulfill. That itch that you're trying to scratch, it's never going to be fulfilled outside of Jesus. And unlike all the earthly pleasures that you're struggling with or you're trying to find fulfillment in, Jesus is never going to leave you wanting more. And he's going to be with you forever. Jesus is better. So, we also overcome the world by believing that Jesus is more inspiring than anything else we can look at. More beautiful than any earthly beauty. And as we begin to see Jesus more and more clearly, all the attractions of the world just kind of fade in comparison to him, right? Like again, I, again, ask, ask people that have been walking with Jesus for a long time, and I'll tell you. People that have been down the road and, and tried it all. They'll tell you that, that, that Jesus is far more beautiful than the thing that you're trying to find beauty in. The world just becomes less and less appealing the more we see of Jesus. We, we, constantly live in, we live in a world that's constantly telling us that if, if, we don't, that if, if we can somehow get a possession or a person that doesn't belong to us, it's going to be like a massive thrill for us. It's going to be a massive uh, rush. But that's a lie. Only Jesus can really fulfill you. We need to replace our desire for earthly things with a desire for Jesus. Okay? So what do I mean by this? I mean, instead of flicking through those fashion magazines and and, and wishing you had a body like hers or a wardrobe like hers, just realize that that's a lie. That the wardrobe and the body aren't going to last. And that Jesus is far more beautiful and the thing that the the the, the, the thing that the fact that the, the, the wardrobe and the looks are important, that's a lie that the world has came up with to take you away from seeing the beauty of Jesus. Or instead of looking at your bank balance and wishing that there was more money in there, like we all do, thank God that you are found in Jesus and you have a treasure that will never last. You're you're richer than the the richest person that has ever lived. Let me me mention this specific one. What about pornography? Honestly, I think it's it's, it's one of the worst desires of the eyes, one of the worst desires of the eyes that we have. It's it's actually crippling the church. I I meet with Christians who who are enslaved to this thing. And it's preventing them from reaching the the fullest of their walk in Jesus. Enslaved by it. And it's nothing more than a lie. And it's a a cruel flipping lie at that. 
And, and listen, if that's something that's in your life, you can have all the accountability partners and all the internet filters you want, but you're never going to overcome that unless you replace what's on that screen with someone that's far more beautiful and far more satisfying. You need a heart change to overcome that. You need to replace that desire with a desire for Jesus because only he can satisfy and give you the intimacy that you're longing for. This is the way to overcome the desires of our eyes. What about overcoming the pride of life? We overcome the pride of life by believing that Jesus is more valuable than all other earthly possessions. See, we live in a world that's constantly compelling us to consume and achieve so that we can consume some more and then achieve some more so that we can consume more. In fact, we're born into it. We go to school, we have to get the good grades so that we can get a good job, so that we can consume, so we can achieve more, so that we can consume. We're born into this system. The only reason to achieve is so that we can consume And so we begin to evaluate our identity based on the stuff that we have and the stuff that we've achieved. And so maybe you haven't got the best grades in A-levels or university and and you start to feel I'm not as worth as much as that person. That's rubbish. Or, or, well, I I haven't got the promotions that other people have, so I'm not as good as them. That's rubbish. Or you don't have as much money as the next person, that's rubbish. Or I, don't wear the, I can't afford the, the coolest clothes, that's rubbish. I don't know what cool music is, it's all rubbish. It's all rubbish anyway. There's nothing wrong with wearing nice clothes and, and having money in the bank. There's nothing wrong with, with going listening to, to drinking good coffee and all the stuff I've talked about, as long as those aren't your ultimate things. Believing in Jesus is is. But when we believe that Jesus is more valuable than any stuff or any success that we could ever have, that's when we overcome the pride of life. Nothing and no one is ultimately more valuable than Jesus. So if we turn back to chapter five, we're gonna see what all this means for us. Look at verse 13 of chapter five. He says, I write these things to you. I write these things to you who believe in the name of the Son of God that you may know that you have eternal life. Now remember what I was talking about before, the context of these false teachers who were sowing seeds of doubt and the Christians are going, I don't know if I'm actually a Christian or not because they're saying, this is what it means to be a Christian. And they're saying, this is what it means to be a Christian. I don't, I don't really know, there's doubt here. And John, when he's closing up this letter to his little children, as he calls them, he loves these people so much. And he, he, starts, he starts the letter by reminding them that he had actually seen and touched and heard the risen Jesus. He said, you can trust my message because I, I've been there, I, knew, I was there, I, I spent time with him when he was risen from the dead. And all throughout the letter, he's been giving them these vital signs for how they can truly know Jesus. I should say how they can know that they know Jesus. And as he closes this letter, he says that if you believe in Jesus, you've been changed internally and you've been given a new nature. You believe, if you believe in Jesus, you've been changed externally because you have a new life. <coughs> Excuse me. And you have a victory over the world. And as he comes to his final words, 
He reminds us again that, that he's been writing all of these things uh, to, to those of us that believe in Jesus so that we can know that we have eternal life. He doesn't want there to be any doubt. And this is the last thing we're going to look at this morning. Believing in Jesus changes us eternally. It changes us eternally because it gives us a confidence that, that will enable us to, to walk through this life and, and, and into the next life with Jesus. I, I, actually, my prayer is that we would all believe that more deeply because I don't know about you, but sometimes I walk around like Jesus didn't rise from the dead. Sometimes we walk around like Jesus actually has, isn't risen from the dead. The way we worry about things, the way we worry about, about all the things that we've just talked about. But the truth is, he is risen from the dead. Hallelujah. And he has victory over all these things. And he, you know what he's going to bring us? These are old-fashioned words, but they're so true. He's going to bring us safely into the presence of the glory of God. That's the future that's ours. So uh, why why would we worry about all these things? Why would we try and find hope and fulfillment and desire and all these other things, right? It's Remembrance Sunday today, and I'm not going to talk too much about what that means in our country, but I want to say this. Imagine if you could go back in history, back in time, to uh, meet with those soldiers who were about to land on the beaches of Normandy, right? Uh, and they're fearful. They don't know what to expect when those doors open. You've probably all seen uh, Saving Private Ryan or something like that. But imagine you could say, guys, listen, I've seen the future and I know that we're going to win this war. That's 100% guaranteed. How would that affect them? How would it change change how they approach them? Would they not fight with more confidence? Would they not fight with more ferocity and fierceness? Because their victory is already secure. They know we're going to win. We're going to make sure we're going to win. I'm going to be braver than I was before because the victory is already mine. And that's what it's like for us, right? We have a victory. So uh, we can have courage. We can hold fast to Jesus. We can keep going when everything around us, everyone around us seems to, is telling us to quit. Why? Well, look at verse 20. And we know that the Son of God has come and has given us understanding so that we may know him who is true. And we are in him who is true. In his son, Jesus Christ. He is the true God and eternal life. Little children, keep yourselves from idols. Why does he say, little children, keep yourselves from idols at that point? He's like, he is true. We are in him who is true. He is the true God and eternal life. Little children, keep yourselves from idols. It's not like he started a new thought and then uh, got distracted and sent the letter anyway. Nah, he said, don't accept any substitutes. All these things that are telling you to find fulfillment? No. It's not going to work. All the things you worry about, you're worrying unnecessarily. All the things that you're trying to fill, find it, uh, fulfillment and, and pleasure in, it's not going it's not, it's not to work. Don't accept the substitutes. Jesus is the true God, and then him is eternal life. Maybe, maybe you're in this room sitting here this morning and you've never believed this, you've never believed in Jesus in the way that we've talked about. Maybe you feel you're too far gone or you're too far away, you're not good enough and you don't, you don't have your act enough together to, to, to believe in Jesus. Well, believe in him and let him do the changing. It's not you that changes yourself, it's him. 
It's not you that does the overcoming, it's him. And so maybe some of you are sitting here and you believe this in a heart level for a really long, or a head level for a really long time. Maybe you grew up going to church and so you have all this head knowledge, you can talk about this stuff as well as anyone can, but you've never really believed in your heart, you've never really let it change your life. Maybe, maybe your faith feels a bit stale, a bit lifeless and a bit powerless. Maybe, maybe it feels like you haven't experienced any victory recently. Maybe you have believed in Jesus, but you're just caught up in this ongoing struggle with the same old issue over and over and over again. Can I just say this? Believe in Jesus. Because in him, God doesn't see you as a sinner. He sees you as a son. He doesn't see you as dirty. He sees you as a daughter. Isn't that amazing? But can we just, I'd love us all, and I, I, like I'm just speaking to myself because I've had such a dry week this week. Um, I just really want us to grasp that great love that the Father has for us, that we have this new identity in Jesus, that, that we've been born of God, that he secured our victory, and you can have confidence before the Father because of Jesus. He's speaking to us today he, through, through his, one of his best friends, John. He's speaking to us this morning today. Jesus, he's calling us to believe in him and allow us to be changed by him internally, externally, and etern eternally. Jesus has done everything necessary. This will be the fourth time I've said this today. He lived the perfect life. He died a sacrificial death and he rose from the dead and ascended to heaven and seated at the right hand of the Father where he advocates for all of those who believe in him. That's you. We're gonna celebrate that now through communion, the Lord's meal, the Lord's supper. On the night that Jesus was betrayed, he, he, he was sitting around the table with the disciples and, and, he, and he took bread and he broke it and he says, uh, eat this bread and remember it as my body which is broken for you. And he took a cup of wine and he passed it around and he said, remember this as my blood which is poured out for you. And so when we eat this bread and drink this wine, we're proclaiming the hope that we have in Jesus. When we do this together, you know what we're doing to each other and to the world? We're saying, we know that the victory is won. That's what this meal is all about. So if you're a Christian and you have believed in Jesus, then come and receive that. Praise the one who made it possible for you to overcome. If you're not a Christian, just refrain from taking that meal, but, but you know, receive Jesus instead today. I'd love, to, I'd love to talk to any of you if, if, if this has raised some issues for you or whatever. That's literally what I'm here for. Um, but for all of us, can we just put our faith in Jesus again and allow him to change us internally and externally and eternally? Let's pray. Uh, Father, thank you for your death. Thank you for your sacrifice. Uh, thank you that you have overcome the world and so in you we have overcome the world. Lord, I just want to, really want to pray for anybody in this room who's struggling with the same old temptations over and over again. Lord, it feels like such a hopeless place sometimes. Um, Father, I pray that, that, that you would uh, call those brothers and sisters back to yourself this morning, that they would turn to you and realize that you have overcome and so in you they have overcome. Lord, I pray that we would all start to see ourselves not as, 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 uh, as sinners, 
but as sons and not as dirty, but as daughters. We ask for a fresh awakening this morning, Lord. We ask for you to impact us, change us, Lord. We need you. We literally need you every minute of every day. Um, We're so weak. We're so needy. But you've provided for all our needs. And you're made strong in our weakness. Holy Spirit, stir in our hearts this morning. Lord, help us do what we need to do to respond to you leading us this morning. We ask these things in Jesus' name, for your glory, Jesus. Amen.